Today's reading will be from Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, and then Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian. You know, it's good. So I've gotten to see Brian twice this week, both times just hanging out in the front of a car, front seat of a car. I could explain that more, but I won't because uh, that's more awkward. Uh, it's good to see you not in a car, Brian. Um, well, good to see you guys. We are continuing in our uh, study through Ephesians. We're kind of finishing up a uh, five-part mini-series that we've been doing within Ephesians, going through what was just read from four Uh, basically 24 all the way through the end of the chapter. We're actually going to go into the beginning of the next chapter a little bit. And all of it has had to do with what does it look like to actually live life in the new self? What does it look like to live life out of response to everything that God has accomplished that, that Paul has talked about throughout all of these chapters leading up to this point? What does it mean to live life within this body, within this community that he has brought us into through the victory that he's had over sin and death. And we've gotten to talk about a lot of things. We've looked at uh, the power of truth-telling in the midst of community. Uh, we've looked at the proper place of anger in Christian community, the value of work, speaking in a way that brings about life in one, in one another. And, he kind of, and Paul is summarizing and ending this section by pointing to basically two ways that we can choose to live. There's kind of two paths that we can take. One path is a path that will ultimately lead to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to the destruction of community, to relationships, and ultimately to ourselves. Or a path that leads to life. And we're going to kind of look at these two different paths today. The first one is what I'm going to call a me-centered life. A me-centered life is one that produces bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Let me read just right here in 431, Ephesians 431. I thought I had it pulled up already. but um, It just says this. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, if you've noticed, I'm actually making somewhat of an interpretive leap about talking about the me-centered life in this. It doesn't actually mention the me-centered life, but underlying all of what Paul is saying is that 
there's kind of two results. If you are living, serving yourself, if the ultimate goal is to understand the world exists to serve you, to cater to you, to build your entitlement, there's certain outcomes that you can expect. There's certain emotions that you can expect to have all the time. There's certain relational dynamics that will flow from a me-centered life. And Paul summarizes them here. A me-centered life is one that produces bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And the reason a me-centered life produces this is that if we go through life believing that we are entitled to the world serving our needs, our best interests, that everything is kind of catering to us, our expectations of life will ultimately butt up against reality. Our expectations of how life it will serve us will ultimately be confronted and conflict with the reality of how the world actually works. Because the world doesn't actually serve you. It doesn't serve me. It doesn't center around me or you or anybody for that matter. And because of that, if we're living our life this way, we will ultimately be met with reality and kind of come back to the reality that we feel bitter about things. We feel wrathful. We feel angry. We feel all of these emotions because what we expected our life to be isn't shaping up to what it actually is. Think about it. Let's take bitterness, for example. If we feel like we're owed something in life and it doesn't happen, which, by the way, happens all the time, there's a very good chance that bitterness will grow. Say we've been working at this company for 10 years. There's a promotion coming up that you feel like you're perfect for. Everybody thinks you're perfect for it. And somebody else gets it. Bitterness grows. There's that one thing that you know your spouse should just know about you. You just know that they should know. You don't have to say anything. And they never do it. Bitterness grows. Not that that would ever happen. <laughs> Bitterness happens when we live a me-centered life. If we expect our life to serve us. Bitterness will ultimately grow because reality will ultimately conflict with our expectations. Wrath is a strong word. It's not a word we often use. But it's something we actually probably feel way more frequently than we, than we would imagine. Wrath is the kind of anger that wants to seek vengeance, that wants to get even. You don't just want to express your anger. You want to make others pay for that. You want to make others pay for what you, you've experienced. And if you're living a me-centered life, this is something you're going to experience all the time. Anger, which is basically living in this perpetual state of perceived injustice. If you're an angry person, that means that you are constantly seeing the injustice all around you. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, anger in and of itself is a natural and okay emotion. The problem is when we live in it, when we stew in it, when we don't address it. Then there's clamor. And clamor I define by just dinner time at my house. If you want to know what clamor is like, come over around five, stay there. You don't have to say anything. You won't really be able to say anything. Um, that's clamor. It's just mayhem. It's just craziness. But that comes in a real way 
as a result of, once again, kind of the peace that we thought would happen by us being served in everyday life falling apart. It just falls apart. Slander. We all know what slander is, but I, but I think it moves beyond it. It's not just lying. It's not just saying bad things about other people, but it's doing so because it serves your best interests. It's saying truth now is going to be subservient to what caters to kind of my life and myself best. That's slander. And that grows when you're me-centered. That's how you justify lying. Because nobody in here thinks lying is good. Nobody thinks that saying terrible things about other people is good. We do that because we ultimately justify it because it ultimately serves our interests better. Malice. I love how he kind of throws this in at the end in the verse. He's, he lists off all these things, and he's like, oh, and all malice. Put that away. Malice is just general badness. I think that's the technical way of defining it. Just general badness. And Paul says to put these things away. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say just that these should never enter a Christian's life. He recognizes that all of these emotions or interactions are probably going to enter into our lives as a result of our brokenness and our sin. So he doesn't say just they should never be there, but when they're there, to put them away. Because the truth is, there's sometimes really good reasons why we would be bitter, why we'd be angry, why we'd feel wrathful, why there might be clamor and mayhem in our lives. There might be really justifiable reasons, but still, he says, if you want to live this new life in Christ, if you want to experience the life that comes from this new way, you can't stay in it. The me-centered life will produce all of these things. And so if you can tell where I'm going with this, if we want to stop doing these things, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm going to stop doing these things. That's never really a good enough justification or a good enough motivation for stopping bad behavior is to just say, I'm going to stop bad behavior. It's like saying, I'm going to stop eating chocolate because all you're going to want to do at that point in time is eat chocolate. That's it. It's not the, that's not the way to really do this. We need to replace it with something different. And that's what the rest of these verses are about. So if a me-centered life is one that produces all these things, if a me-centered life is one that ultimately leads us unto death, we have to ask then what is the opposite of it? What is Paul telling us to do? What does it mean to live this new life in Christ? So the other way, the one that leads to life, is a gospel-centered life. Notice I didn't say an others-centered life. That's what we might expect from this, but it's something deeper, something that we actually have to do and know and understand more fundamentally than just being others-focused. It's a gospel-centered life. A gospel-centered life is one that produces kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and dying to self-love. A gospel-centered life is one that produces kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and dying to self-love. Let me read this in Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, verse 2. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, if you've been here for any period of time, you've heard us use the term gospel-centered. Every time we get up here and talk about what Redemption Church is, we say we are a gospel-centered and outward-focused church. Uh, You've probably read different things that talk about gospel-centeredness. Gospel-centeredness is a word and a term that is very important to Redemption Church and to the church at large. So I think it's important that we actually understand what we mean when we say gospel-centered and why that actually should be the motivation, why that's the thing underlying the behaviors and actions that Paul is talking about here. And I actually like to define gospel-centered by actually looking at one of the parables that Jesus tells. It's in the middle of a, a dinner that he's at, at a Pharisee's house named Simon. He's in there, and Simon comes in, and it's really kind of to test the waters with Jesus. He's doing this. He doesn't really do anything to make him feel special, make him feel honored. He doesn't wash his feet when he comes in, all that stuff. Right in the middle of dinner, uh, this woman who all we know is she was considered a sinner. So we don't know exactly what it is that she did, but she was an outcast, somebody that the Pharisee would have never invited into his home, somebody whom Jesus as a rabbi, as somebody in that world should never have associated with. This woman comes in and she begins to weep at Jesus' feet. She begins to use her tears to wash his feet and her hair to wash off his feet. She just does this over and over again. And Jesus, who can read people's thoughts, looks at at, uh, Simon, the Pharisee, and kind of asks him this question. He tells him the story because he could see that Simon was uncomfortable with this and kind of judging. He says this in in, uh, Luke 7, 41. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. We don't need to necessarily know what a denarii is or equals. We know that 500 is way more than 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And he says that looking at the woman, saying, look, she gets it. She's been forgiven much. She's been loved much. And she understands that her life is a response to that reality. The implication is actually that Simon actually owes the same debt. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Just Simon doesn't recognize it yet. He's not living like the same debt that was canceled for her was canceled for him. So we ask the question, what is gospel-centered? And this is how I like to define gospel-centeredness. A gospel-centered life is one lived in honest reaction to how much we are loved by God and forgiven by Him. When we say that we are a gospel-centered church, that means that everything that we do is motivated by this reality, that we are loved by God when we are unlovable, and we are forgiven by God when we were in sin. That we were the debtor that owed 500 denarii. That we were the one who owed a debt that they could not pay back and that was ultimately forgiven by God. And so what we do is not a response to try to earn God's love. It's not an attempt to just be a good person. It's an honest reaction to the reality that we are loved by God and forgiven by Him. We are loved and forgiven by Him. 
And he says, because he did this, that's why we live as imitators of him. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So as many of you know, I have four kids, and I get to experience what it's like to live with beloved children um, all the time. And you know, it's funny, I I like to describe it as having a um, discerning taste when it comes to coffee and music and things like that. Others have different words to describe it, um, like snob or uh, annoying, uh, things like that. But I'm very typical in that. I'm a major coffee snob. Whereas, you know, when I'm at home, I have like a Chemex, I have an AeroPress, I have all the things that you do to drive other people crazy about coffee. Now, to be fair, I drink coffee black, which is the way coffee should be drunk. Um, And you know what? I've grown a little bit. Coffee's about taste. Drink it however you want. That's fine. If you put creamer in there, flavored creamer, you just don't get to have an opinion about what kind of coffee beans. Okay? that's That's just the way it is. I don't care that you do it, you just can't have an opinion. Um, but, so, so I do this, so my kids see me wake up in the morning, and where other people just go like that to start a coffee, I'm like grinding beans, I'm measuring stuff out, I'm doing all this stuff, and, and it, it's, it is obnoxious, I get it, but it does taste better. And I say this because I noticed this about maybe a few months ago, my kids were in the bath, um, they were... Uh, doing this weird thing where they were like lining up all those like cups that have like weird holes in the bottom, lining them up on top of each other and dumping water on top of them. And I was like, what are you, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, I'm just making coffee. <laughs> just making coffee, dad. And I'm like, okay, they're imitators of their dad. Uh, in fact, the other night um, I had to get Wesley, our two-year-old, who did not want to get out of the bath but needed to get out of the bath because he was a mess. Um, uh, and as I'm tracking him out, he's like, I'm making mommy coffee! Just over and over again. Um, you know, so we see this stuff happen. The other day, uh, for example, I, I'm also kind of snobby about music. Uh, we were in the car driving, and Taylor Swift's song, Style, came on the radio. I don't even know why we were listening to the radio. I rarely ever allow us to listen to the radio. But it came on, and my eight-year-old in the back was like, hey, Daddy, Ryan Adams' cover of this is way better. <laughs> and I began to tear up a little bit. I began to cry, to praise, things like that. And it's funny because you look at this, and I love his picture of that. Like beloved children, when they look at their dad, they just do what their dad does. If their dad loves snobby coffee, they act like they love snobby coffee, even though I've tried to let them actually taste it and they hated it. Their dad is snobby about music, they're going to be snobby about music. If their dad is kind, if their dad is forgiving, if their dad is loving in a way that dies to self, if their dad is all of those things that beloved children are going to follow in their footsteps and they're going to do their best to try it. They're never as good as they could be at it, but they try it. They're imitators of their father because they're beloved children and they see what he's doing. This is what the gospel-centered life is. We have been brought into his family. We are his beloved children, not because of anything we have done or earned, but because he loved us and chose us and brought us into his family. We are his. And because of that, when we see him acting a certain way, we want to act that way because we are his children. 
because we are loved, because we are forgiven. We do this because we're following our Father. So then let's look at these things that he lists off. Start with kindness. It's not enough to just say, be kind. That's what I want to make sure we hear in this. That Paul is just not saying, hey, be kind, be tenderhearted, do these things. Because you'll find that just as ineffective as it is to say, I'm not going to do those bad things, it's equally ineffective just to say, out of my own volition and will, I'm just going to do really good things. That'll last for a little bit, but it's not a sustainable life. So it's important that we understand he doesn't just say be kind. He says be kind because Jesus was kind. Be kind because Jesus was kind. Kind is one of those words that I think we, we think is just kind of a, a sissy way of life. Like it's not really... It's not really strong to be kind. But that's not really, a, that's a really a bad understanding of the nature of kindness. Kindness is not niceness. He doesn't say be nice, he says be kind. It's an active verb that denotes kind of a humble usefulness. It's recognizing, hey, I have something that can help serve somebody else. I'm not going to make it about myself, I'm just going to do something kind for them, not because they deserve it, not because it benefits me, but because I can. I think a great example of this is actually Jesus' first, um, uh, his first miracle in John 2. So he's hanging out at a party with his mom, uh, which is the way to party back in those days. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, if you didn't know anything about Jesus, you'd say, well, that's a random thing to tell your son, because what is your son going to do about it? But she knew something about her son that not many people, and really nobody at this point in time knew about him, that he actually had a usefulness to this problem. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And to come to Jesus' defense there, that seems offensive, but it's not. To refer to somebody as woman was not a derogatory or pejorative way. It was literally just the way you would refer to somebody who was a female and an elder to you. So before we get all up in arms about the way that's translated, that's just how that was in those times. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I just love that his mother just ignores him. <laughs> She's just typical mother, like, I, I'm just going to move beyond what you just said, and you're going to still do what I say. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What Jesus did there was kind. 
He didn't get any credit for it. He actually didn't want to do it because he knew it wasn't really his time to start doing miracles. But he had a usefulness to a solution, and he did it. Jesus was kind. He was a kind man. It talks about God's kindness. In Romans, Paul talks about it in another book that Paul wrote. That it's his kindness that ultimately leads us to repentance. It's the fact that he makes himself useful to us in forgiveness and love. He makes us useful to us in kind of the way he is constantly there and faithful to us. And it's not him shaming us. It's not him judging us. It's not him punishing us that ultimately leads us to repent. It's the fact that he is kind to us. And because he is kind, Paul tells us to be kind. Be kind to one another. Like if you're at home and you see dishes need to be done, just do them. Unless you're literally physically incapable of doing dishes, which would be awesome. <laughs> but do dishes. Help a friend when you can. One of the things that I've really been uh, convicted on is serving my kids, being kind to my kids. Like I, like I can use kind words to my kids, but when I see them struggling with something, to actually be like, wait, I can actually help with that. Like, one of the things that we've been having them do is put the dishes away, and which is a great, give them some chores, have them participate, all of that stuff. But a lot of the things that they're having to put away, it's like a ninja warrior for them to get on the thing, to get up there, to put like the cup at the t- very top of the counter. And I'm sitting in there doing nothing, watching them struggle, and I'm thinking, you know what? I could be kind right now. I have something they don't have, which is height. I could be useful to them. It's things like that that we can show. And yes, kindness can be much bigger, but it needs to be also much smaller in how we interact with one another. Pay attention to the needs and struggles of the people around you and make yourself useful. Be proactive in it. Because Jesus was kind. Next we see tenderhearted. And once again, it's not just be tenderhearted, but be tenderhearted because Jesus was tenderhearted. In Luke 19, 41, and I'm just going to have it come up here. He's coming up into the city of Jerusalem, just to give you a little background. People in Jerusalem, for the most part, a lot of people hated him. They'd ridiculed him, and he knew that he was about to go into Jerusalem and be killed. He knew this when this happened. And when he drew near and saw the city, he says he wept over it. He wept over it. You know, there is a trend in our culture that responds to hard things, that, that responds to the challenges of life with cynicism. I feel it so much in my own heart that when I'm met with hurtful things, when I see the brokenness of the world, when I see my own brokenness, I would rather just critique it and wash my hands of it. I would rather be cynical than be hurt. It's a way that we protect ourselves from the brokenness of the world. And we almost idolize it in saying that cynicism is a good thing, that it's a benefit. Paul Miller in his book, uh, A Praying uh, Life, talks about cynicism here. He said, cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everyone has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. (laughs) The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged loving, and hoping. If there was any person in the world who would have been justified in being cynical, it was Jesus. He saw the junk in everybody's heart. He knew the angle. He spent his time around 12 disciples, one of whom he knew was going to betray him, 
one he knew was going to deny him, one he knew was going to doubt him, and all of whom but one he knew was going to abandon him. He knew that about his disciples. If there was anybody who should have probably protected his heart from that reality and grown cynical, it was Jesus, but he didn't. He chose tenderheartedness. He chose to allow the brokenness of the world to actually affect how he felt, actually affect the way he interacted with the world. He was tenderhearted. And this is something that's going to be so hard for us to do because it is so much easier to be cynical in this world than to be tenderhearted. But God calls us into that. And if we are living life in this new life of Christ with one another, as members one of another, we need to be tenderhearted. We need to allow the pain of others to affect us, draw us closer to one another, and bring us into that honest reckoning of what the reality of the brokenness of this world is. Because in that, God breeds compassion. So we see that we were to be kind because Jesus was kind, be tenderhearted because Jesus was tenderhearted. That we are to forgive because Jesus forgave. While on the cross, dying for us on our behalf, Jesus says this, and it should baffle us that this is something that he would say. In Luke 23, verse 33 and 34, he says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would look at that thing and like, I think they do know what they do. I think they get what they're doing. Maybe not the full implications, but they know they're killing a man, and that likely he was innocent. But God, Jesus, in the midst of that, says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Because Jesus did that, because he forgave us, we are to forgive others. Uh, there's a man named John Perkins, uh, who uh, is a theologian and, and a part of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, and has been part of kind of working through reconciliation within the church. Um, and in 1970, shortly after he had come to know Christ, um, he was leading a protest in I, I, somewhere in the South, I believe in Missouri. And after he found out some of the protesters that he was working with had gotten arrested, he decided to go back to the jail to be able to talk with them, meet with them. Before he even was able to step into the police station, he was attacked by police officers, brought in, and beat within an inch of his life by them. In the months to follow, he had a heart attack and a number of other um, physical problems and health problems as a result of this beating that happened. happened in a town called Brandon. And this is his response. This is ultimately what came from this. Uh, This is in the book. uh, It's called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. They're interviewing John Perkins and asking him about how this affected his ministry, how this reality, what happened to him there affected him. He He writes this, John sat forward, his brow furrowed with thoughtfulness and began, After Brandon, I couldn't look at a white highway patrol man. But when I was in the hospital, I was operated on by a white man. And a young doctor from Australia would come to my bed at night and read to me. I didn't care if he came or not, but as I healed, I began to feel the depths of his love for me. It took those white people to live out a faith that I could believe. It affected me. I felt that they loved me and had hope in me beyond myself. I think we are healed by that interaction of each other, by seeing love in that other person. 
Once a white man said to me, tell me what you and your family need and add the cost of gas. And every two weeks, I will send you a check for that so you can go on doing your ministry. As we recalled this exchange, John's eyes welled up with tears. He paused to collect himself and continued. He was a southern white man, and I was getting involved in all kinds of civil rights work to overthrow his system. Reconciliation can't take place until we believe we are all created in the image of God and have absolute value and worth. We have to become healed within the context of the people who have wounded us. We have to forgive each other. We have to forgive each other. A person who has gone through more than I could ever imagine, who's hurt more, that had more reason to be bitter and wrathful and filled with anger than any person that I know. He instead chose to forgive. And he forgave because he understood something fundamental that they, there's other parts where he'll talk about this, is that he looked the eyes of the men beating him and he recognized that they were no longer people anymore. That they were just people that had been broken and tormented by hate. That hate does to them the same thing that it does to everybody else and that the true evil is something different and he chose to forgive. I get it that when we're harmed, it hurts, and that it's not easy to forgive. But we remember in the midst of it because we don't forgive each other because we're great people. We forgive each other because the debt that somebody owes us is never going to be as great as the debt that we owed God. And God, instead of exacting that debt from us, forgave it. We forgive because Christ forgave us. The last thing it says is to walk in love, in a certain type of love, not just love, but a love that gives itself, that dies in the midst of it. It says to love with dying love because Jesus loved us through death. I think one of the biggest challenges uh, in a very practical way as I became a parent eight years ago is I was very much so, I, I loved my morning routine. And for anybody who loves their morning routine and then has kids, you can empathize with what I'm talking about. Like I would get up at a certain time, I would work out for a certain time, I would read for a certain time, I would write for a certain time. Like I had it all allocated, and because my wife is not a morning person, I would have the morning all to myself, and it was wonderful. I loved it. It was everything I wanted, and then children happened. And without really knowing why, they would just wake up needing things. I'm looking at them, I'm like, it's five in the morning. I know why I'm awake. Do you know why you're awake? The answer was no, they didn't. And that hasn't stopped, that hasn't changed. And really, like, it seems silly, but it's one of those things that affects every day of your life. And when you're in that thing for so long, there was just honestly this legitimate bitterness that I felt towards my kids acting like children and waking up. Like this baby, how dare it, needing something, because it's not capable of walking and communicating its needs. How dare it do this to me? This is my time. I would really, really struggle with this. And I've struggled with this for a long time. But if this is what this means, if it means to walk in love, means to die to yourself, there really should be a different reaction I have when my kids interrupt me or when something like that happens. And, I, and I've really learned this through both studying this and reading Paul Miller. Because when those things happen, we can respond in two ways. We can grow bitter and frustrated that our needs aren't being met, that somebody's messing with our vision of life. 
where we can understand that these moments are an invitation into death. That when my kid wakes up at 4.30 in the morning, when I was planning on waking up just a little bit later to do whatever I wanted to do, I shouldn't be mad at that kid. I should be rejoicing. Because that kid, God is working through that kid to bring me a little closer to dying to myself. This is, I think, the great irony of the Christian walk. That on the one hand, salvation is free. It is a free gift of God. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to buy it. Anything like that. It is a free gift of God. Yet it is a free gift that costs us everything. That yes, it's the free gift, but it's also the treasure that's hidden in a field that you sell everything for to go get. If we want to love like Jesus loves, we must also die. And we must see all these things that we consider frustrations, annoyances, as an invitation to death. Something that Paul Miller writes. It says, when you realize that death is at the center of love, it is quietly liberating. Instead of fighting the death that comes with love, you embrace what your Father has given you. Like Jesus, we must embrace the death that the Father has put in front of us. The path to resurrection is through dying, not fighting. And this is hard because we live in a world that believes that we can have both, that we can fully love people yet fully serve ourselves, that we can be generous and exorbitant, that we can seek the best interests of others without losing anything on our own. We believe in a life that has all the benefits of all those things with none of the cost. But that is not the way of the new life of Christ. The way of the new life of Christ is through death. It's through death to ourselves. It's through seeing every moment of these interactions as an invitation of God to die just a little more to yourself so that you can actually love the way Christ loved us. To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to end with just a few closing observations about this. The first is that to be imitators of God, we need to actually know him and spend time with him. This isn't my pitch of saying, well, if you're not having like a 50-minute quiet time every morning, then you're not doing it right. That's not what I mean. I mean, what we need to do is stop treating this like this is a belief system and a class that we're coming to study, but a person that we're actually choosing to follow. That we're getting to know Jesus, not just what he says, not the doctrines that he teaches, but the way he interacts. How does he interact with people? How does he respond in certain situations? Look to him, not like you're following a book, but like you're following around your dad that you love, that you want to follow, that you want to do what he does. We need to know him. We need to spend time with him if we were to be imitators of him. Second is, Jesus showed who he was in relationship with others. So we need to be in attentive relationship with the people around us. Notice I said attentive relationship. There are plenty of times when we're hanging out with one another and doing it just to serve our own interests, just to stroke our own egos, to make ourselves feel better about whatever it is we want to feel better about. Attentive relationship is one where you're actually paying attention the needs of others. You're able to anticipate what somebody else might need. 
what somebody else is going through. You recognize maybe the emotional state that your friend is in. Be attentive in a relationship because Jesus was attentive in his. And he lived these things out. None of these things can be practiced on your own. You can't just forgive on your own. It requires somebody else. You can't just be kind on your own. It requires somebody else. Tenderhearted, all of these things requires other people in your life. The last, and this is really a personal conviction of mine that I I think uh, is worth saying here, is that this needs to start at home. I think it's so easy for us to think, well, okay, for me to walk in love or to be kind, I need to just go do something radical somewhere else. This is probably one of the things that that uh, gives me the most kind of heaviness about the reality of being a Christian, living the Christian life, is that I can be the greatest Christian ever anywhere else, but if I'm not great at home, if I'm not kind, if I'm not tenderhearted, if I'm not forgiving at home, if I'm not being gospel-centered at home, then it really just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how I am anywhere else. This is the challenge that I would say, is let this play out at home. Be kind to your spouse, to your roommate. Be kind to your children. Be tenderhearted towards them. Be forgiving and be loving in a dying-to-self kind of love there. Because Jesus did that for you. Let this play out at home and see what it shapes, see what it changes. This incredible, what, the, what will happen to the dynamic of our home with just a little bit of kindness, with just a little bit of forgiveness forgiveness. It is shocking the difference that it makes. So this needs to start at home. Let me pray. Lord God, we are so thankful, Lord, for the incredible work that you've done, Lord, in redeeming us, Lord, in bringing us into your life. God, I pray that as we follow you, as we see who you are, God, as we observe you as beloved children, Lord, that we would be imitators of you, that we would want to do what you want to do, Lord, that our desires would become your desires because you first loved us and because you forgave us. Lord, we are so thankful for the invitation into death that we are confronted with every single day. Lord, the opportunity that you give us to love just a little more like you through sacrifice. I pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to continue by